This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hello and welcome to this week's Money and Markets podcast. As you might expect, the UK's soaring inflation rate takes a starring role. Joining this week's cast, we've got Tom Sieber from Shares Magazine. Hi, Tom. Hi, Danny. Yeah, so you're right. Inflation is taking up quite a lot of space in the latest set of earnings reports from companies like Mr. Kipling Maker Premier Foods and the US retail giant Walmart. And I'll be looking at what's been moving on markets this week and what else is behind those moves. With markets going through, it's fair to say, a very difficult patch, Dan Coatsworth's been picking the brains of someone who's been through bad times, as well as the good. James Dupper from Lion Trust Asset Management gives his insight into what investors should be thinking about right now. And whilst we're focused on inflation this week, and I'm sure so are many investors, obviously investing is all about future returns. And we've been asking David Jane from Premier Mighton about the trends he think will, thinks will be important longer term. Plus the latest Twitter twist, plans to change how often the price cap is fixed and massive upheaval in the cryptoverse. And if that wasn't enough, Jenny Owen will be here with some money madness and news of how a £100 charity donation turned into £140,000. Fabulously huge amount of money from 100 quid. Um, let's kick off with inflation, talking about, you know, 100 quid turning into 140,000. Um, not quite that high, but uh, certainly the UK's inflation rate has hit a 40-year high. It came in at 9% today. Um, I don't think there was a great deal of surprise when the numbers came in, because, of course, this reflects awful April when we saw the energy price cap increase and consumers having to find an extra £700 a year if they were on that that sort of dual fuel standard tariff. And of course, with no uh, deals available to switch at the moment, then a lot of people are now finding themselves falling onto that. But along with that huge hike, which is one of the things which really has set the UK apart from lots of other countries. The numbers today show that uh, the UK has the highest inflation rate in the G7. But as well as that, there's all sorts of other things which is impacting us every time that we go to, well, any till at all. Tom, I would imagine that you're also finding it when you pop to the supermarket, when yeah. you go and fill up the car. Yeah, exactly. I mean, often it's an online shop these days, but when you do it, you're suddenly thinking, how is that? Did, did I buy some really expensive item? And it's it's not, it's just... Yeah, you, you can. It's visceral, isn't it, at the moment? And I think, you know, it's. I in my adult life, I can't remember it being like this. So I suppose it's it's a new experience for me, and I think that's probably true for a lot of people. Well, April just saw so many things go up, and when prices have sort of been around that two percent mark, that that target that the Bank of England has has tried to keep at then those sort of hikes and things like your mobile phone tariff, you maybe not notice them so much. But I think every time that I've logged on to my bank and I've seen that something has gone up, and you're absolutely right, you know, when you go to the supermarket, you are thinking that you must have bought something expensive. And 
that is because absolutely everything is, is going up. I mean, I was just digging through some of the figures that the Office for National Statistics put out this morning. And, you know, you're talking about things like bread and pasta and they're, they're jumping up by around 10% in some cases, more in other cases. And we've had petrol and diesel hitting record highs because, of course, of this situation, this sort of perfect storm of things, which have all happened at the same time. You've got the global economy waking up after COVID lockdowns, which means that there's been more demand. You've got China lockdowns once again, adding to all those supply chain woes that were just about beginning to work their way through. And then you've got the war in Ukraine, which has seen sanctions on on things like Russian oil and gas, but also has meant that the wheat price has just gone soaring. And the governor of the Bank of England was put on the spot um, a couple of days ago about why um, about whether or not he had acted too slowly in raising rates. And he was saying, look, you know, we can't predict things like wars, these kind of external shocks. But he did also warn, you know, that we are facing apocalyptic-style food prices. I mean, when you have the governor of the Bank of England using words like that, it just makes you sit up and take notice. And, of course, this this isn't the end of it. No, absolutely. Yeah, I mean... Some of the the sort of cost pressures we're seeing aren't aren't really reflected in the data yet, are they? So, yeah, it does feel like we're at, at the beginning rather than the end of this, unfortunately. And we're also hearing time after time from companies at the moment when they are releasing their latest earnings update, their warnings about price rises. Uh, market reaction today, initially from markets in London, was was fairly sanguine, but as sort of dawning realisation took hold of exactly how bad things were. Uh, We did see um, the FTSE lose ground and we've also seen the pound losing quite a bit against the US dollar as people consider that maybe the Bank of England won't be able to act maybe as, as fast and as far as maybe the Fed can because there is a real risk of recession. And as I say, companies are... Well, they've in some cases been able to maybe stomach some of the hikes. In some cases, they've passed some of the hikes on, but it is itching into margins, Tom. 100%, yeah. So, I mean, this has been a running theme for a while, but there are signs that we're reaching a, a real crunch point, not least, um, in fact, in results from the, the US retail titan Walmart, which on the 17th of May saw its shares, so um, yesterday as we're recording, so its shares suffer its biggest drop since Tapao was top of the charts with China in your hand, or perhaps more relevantly, Wall Street suffered its Black Monday crash. So this was a really big, big drop. It fell more than 10% at one one stage. Um, and in the UK as well, we've seen Premier Foods revealing you know acute cost pressures and, and announcing plans for further price increases. Um, going back to Walmart, I mean, it delivered this big cut to four-year guidance thanks to the inflationary pressures. And one of the problems it faces is that because people associate it with value, its margins are typically tighter already and it has less capacity to put up prices if it wants to kind of retain those bargain credentials. So I think companies in that situation are definitely, you know, more at the um, the rough end of, yeah. of kind of, you know, rapidly rising prices. Um, where it's maybe a bit less of an issue, at least for the moment, is for luxury goods firms. So, 
You've also recently seen watchers of Switzerland and Burberry talking about cost pressures, but they've also demonstrated their ability to put up prices without hurting demand too much. And I guess that makes sense if you think that, you know, their wealthy clientele are less exposed to cost of living pressures anyway. Um, and they're also less likely to be put off, you know, an expensive watch or a coat because the price tag has gone up a few percentage points. So I think that, that there is this sort of interesting divergence between the companies that are really exposed to to these inflationary pressures and those that are able to sort of, you know, navigate them a little bit more easily. And I was just looking uh, in the last hour or so, um, Target has just announced that its quarterly profits halved and warned of a, a bigger margin hit, um, exactly the same reasons that, that Walmart is struggling and its share price has fallen by 24%. We're seeing huge volatility because investors are really worried about inflation. Yes, absolutely. And they're right to be, obviously, because... I think, you know, as we talked about before, we don't know if, you know, exactly where we are with this. And, you know, companies could be having to deal with these inflationary pressures for quite a long time. And um, and clearly households, you know, are cutting back on spending as well. So you, you could have a combination of, of lower sales and lower margins, which is obviously pretty toxic. Now, inflation is not the only thing that's moved markets. We are going to talk a bit more about inflation. We can't get away from it today. However, some good news from China did give stocks a bit of a reprieve yesterday. Yeah, so there's plans for Shanghai to sort of tentatively return to normal in June, um, which is is obviously good news, you know, I, I mean, both in China, um, but also for sort of globally, because of, you know, what we talked about, the impact on supply chains of, of China having these kind of quite restrictive um, COVID regulations in place. And there's obviously a big incentive for China to reopen if it's going to hit what many people are thinking is an increasingly unrealistic annual growth target of 5.5%. Um, you know, it's clear it's having to weigh the the need for sort of to, to get the economy moving again with the risks associated with you know what many people perceive as limited vaccine efficacy and and lower levels of immunity in the population um and it it feels like something's going to have to give at some point with this zero, zero covid policy because china after the first lockdown i mean it came out of the gates fighting and in 2020 i think it was the only um major economy that that saw growth yeah but it's been really struggling to, you know, maintain that kind of momentum. And 5.5% at the moment just seems absolutely unattainable. And that's possibly one of the reasons that we've seen some movement as well from China on their tech crackdown. The Chinese vice president met with tech executives yesterday, really trying to make nice, it feels. Although, to be fair, that there was hardly very much detail on the issue, which is one of the reasons we haven't seen um, certainly Asian stocks recover in quite the same way. We sort of saw a, a blip from US tech stocks yesterday as they went, oh, this could be quite interesting, and, and a blip from um, US listed Chinese tech stocks as well. But these sort of words that the government will properly manage the relationship between government and the market will back tech companies to list both in domestic and foreign markets. Some of this sounds good, but you've also got to factor in that that some of these tech businesses have also taken a pretty big kicking. And certainly, you know, Hong Kong markets didn't 
really see the same growth as we, we saw in um, on Wall Street yesterday because they are concerned about growth prospects. Uh, we've seen some job cuts. We've seen some dismal earnings. And, you know, in a lot of ways, these tech stocks reflected in very much the same way as US tech stocks. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, you know, the, the trend in the US tech sector has been, been negative for a while with, with the odd sort of day where, you know, you feel like there's been a, a a modest recovery but i mean the benchmark nasdaq index is down more than a quarter year to date um, and i guess that along with this huge crash in cryptocurrencies we've seen recently i mean something like two trillion dollars has been wiped off the the sort of global cryptocurrency market in in the last few months and and more recently you've seen the collapse of these two interlinked um cryptos called terra and luna and uh, you know all this kind of collapse of, of perhaps slightly more speculative ends of the market or higher valued ends of the market it does have some uncomfortable echoes with what we saw in the dot-com collapse you know two decades two decades ago and what what really um got to me is seeing some of the um messages pointing people towards um places that they could go to to talk if they were feeling particularly bad if they were considering suicide because you were having messages from people saying that they'd lost absolutely everything which you know really just gives another warning that you shouldn't put all your money into one basket. That is why diversification is so important. And of course, there's been a huge push again to suggest that regulation is needed. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, what you just talked about there is is hugely sobering. And, and obviously, um, you know, it, regulation is probably required because you've got people who unfortunately are kind of quite vulnerable in in these situations and and end up you know in in sort of disastrous um scenarios because because they've kind of well perhaps that kind of fear of missing out now with markets going through a very difficult patch it does pay to listen to the views of someone who's been through the good and the bad times james dupper works for lion trust asset management and runs the edinburgh investment trust dan spoke to him about what investors should think about when everything around them looks bleak if you're an investor at the moment and you're sort of worried about what's going on can you Given your sort of experience and seeing sort of both good and bad times over the years, is there any sort of reason to be optimistic at the moment about the future? And perhaps people haven't quite cottoned on to sort of the, the positive factors that might still be there. Yeah, I mean, I think um, I think the first thing to say is that you generally don't uh, get attractive prices when all the news is rosy. And that's a sort of often a difficult thing for a novice investor to get their mind round. Um, you know, for example, you know, BP bottomed when the column inches in the newspapers were the greatest and most negative. Um, and obviously, at the moment, you open the newspapers and it it is a pretty depressing smorgasbord of, of news. But if you think about um, what that means in the various markets, uh, and you know, I've illustrated that through perhaps food retail with Tesco 
if you like, beginning to sort of really crunch its sort of muscular market position, actually a tough time can actually be pretty good. Or for example, for Shell in its trading business, uh, you know, many of its hitherto competitors in trading are actually constrained on the collateral side. So it gives it a chance to make a bit more money. Or uh, Centrica and British Gas, many of its competition now have gone out of business. So, you know, often what you have is a period where the short term appears to be tough, but as long as the companies you're investing in are actually strategically improving their position and enhancing their market position, it will pay dividends over the long term. Now, James made a good point to looking at companies' longer term strength and one stock which is certainly flexing its muscles in a highly competitive market is Tesco. This is what James had to say about the supermarket and its rivals, including Asda, which was until recently owned by the US grocery giant Walmart. If you think about um, what Tesco faces, um, it faces the issue that the price of most of the product that it's distributing, if you think about a distributor of sort of food and HPC products, you know, are going up in, in, in price. Um, and it's got to ensure that it retains its, its, its reputation and trust and value with uh, consumers. Um, now, last time round it faced this sort of issue was... Um, was was uh, 08, 09. Uh, what it had done is made a little bit of a mistake of allowing its uh, price file to rise too much relative to the German discounters and lost a lot of customers. Now, this time round, um, as you know, what it's doing is uh, it's got the Aldi price match, which is basically designed to say to consumers, look, um, you know, there's not much point splitting your shop um, to save a bit. Um, and also what it's got is it's got the club card um, uh, dynamic. And those twin things are actually meaning that it is gaining customers against most of its competitors, not all, but most. And what it's also seeing is a big competitive shift, because if you think about what's happened over the last year, you've seen um, Asda being bought by the ESA brothers, and you'd much prefer to compete against the ESA brothers than um, Walmart, um, because the ESA brothers have very high debt levels, and Walmart has the ability, if they wish, to launch a price war. Uh, and Morrison's has obviously been bought also by private equity and has substantial leverage. So the competitive situation has markedly, markedly moved in Tesco's favour. So, yes, it has near-term pressures, but the long-term aspect, which is what we look for, is that Tesco's um, business is immeasurably strengthened competitively. So, you know, earnings, frankly, are going to be blunt for a bit, but it's doing a nice buyback. It offers a nice dividend 
and it's on a free cash flow yield of about seven and a half percent. So it's you know it's one we definitely definitely like. Yes, really interesting stuff there. And <clears throat> the nature of markets is that people start to to look forward again. And while there's a lot of doom and gloom around just now, inevitably there's been some discussion of whether share prices have fallen just too far and whether or not that's creating opportunities for investors. Um, Scottish Mortgage, which, you know, until very recently was a hugely popular fund, you know, investing in technology based and innovative companies. And whereas it's often traded at quite a a substantial premium to the value of its assets, it's now trading at at a a pretty sizable discount. And another point sort of worth bearing in mind, you know, with this idea of opportunities is that there are companies out there which are delivering good news which i guess given the the prevailing gloom is going a bit under the radar so this is just a very quick list of businesses which have actually beaten expectations or lifted guidance recently and they come from a pretty diverse range of sectors it's by no means exhaustive but you've had um companies like the magazine publisher future and the house builder and developer vistry support services firm dcc premier foods even which we mentioned earlier and jd sports all of these companies have been beating beating expectations or you know lifting future guidance even and the questions investors will be asking i guess will be can they keep this going or are they in danger of being overtaken by negative forces in the wider economy Um, and i guess you know the only sort of thing that will reveal that is time although one name i didn't mention on the list of firms delivering good news yet is frp advisory which boosts its own guidance this week and given it specializes in insolvencies that might not be such a positive thing for the wider corporate world and you mentioned earlier that sort of fear of missing out where you've also got the sort of similar effect when people see stocks falling that they, they sort of have that feeling that that maybe they really do need to sell and i think the really important thing with investing is we always talk about that time horizon and you know don't keep constantly looking at the market yeah. stocks going up and down because that way madness absolutely lies although for investors in twitter that they probably can't avoid it at the moment. Do you use Twitter very much? Yeah, yeah, mainly for work, I'd say. I try and avoid it other than that. But yeah, I I do, I do. Well, Elon Musk uses it a whole lot and he's been using it a whole lot to talk about this deal, his plans to buy Twitter, to take it over. Obviously, he's made and had accepted um, a bid which um, would value, uh, would deliver 54.20 a share. However, he has then said that he's put plans on pause. And then just this week, just a couple of days ago, he then starts talking about the bots, the number of spam accounts which currently make up Twitter's users. He's taken exception to this this figure of 5%, which Twitter have put forward. He reckons that, you know, it's a lot more than that, maybe sort of 20%, and is now putting things on pause, a lot of people speculating that he's trying to drive down the price so that he gets this now at a discount. And if you look at where Twitter shares closed yesterday, down at 38.32, that's a 30% discount on the offer price that Elon Musk made. Now, even if Twitter's estimate is off, then 
Elon Musk would have to show that Twitter was seeking to intentionally mislead investors. Uh, and there's sort of all sorts of legal jargon in there, which suggests that, that that's not an argument that he would be likely to win in the courts. But also, when he made this offer, he waived due diligence when he negotiated the deal, which, of course, is another legal hurdle. Now, he might be able to just walk away, but we do know that there's this this one billion pound breakup fee, which would be attached to that, or... Could Twitter maybe go back and, and renegotiate the price that uh, that they've agreed? Because if they try and force him to follow this through, to actually deliver on his offer in the courts, that could take a huge amount of time. And all of the time while this is happening, you've got people who have got money sunk into Twitter shares watching <laughs> uh, yeah. this all play out, you know, in their share price. I mean, it's it's... It's fascinating to watch from the sidelines. It really is. Yeah, but the soap opera probably isn't as enjoyable if you're you're sort of you've got a direct stake in it, is it? So um, not so much. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So yeah, I mean, who knows? Who knows um, what happens there next? So while investors are primarily focused on inflation right now, it's important to think in the longer term, as we've been discussing. And as such, we've asked David Jane from Premier Mighton to come on the show and talk about some of the investment themes he thinks will be important as we look to the future. So while investors are primarily focused on inflation at the moment, I think it's important to sort of think longer term. And as such, we've asked David Jane from Premier Mighton to come on the show to talk about some investment themes he think will be important as we look to the future. So first of all, David, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. Um, so can we start off with uh, perhaps this first theme, the end of globalisation? Is this sort of the idea that countries are going to be a bit more self-sufficient, particularly when it comes to manufacturing? Well, quite clearly, um, in a sense, to think about the end of globalisation, it's almost worth thinking about the reasons why we had that 30-year period of globalisation. And in many ways, it was driven by a number of structural factors, all of which you can say are now finished. So one structural factor would be, you know, the entrance of China into the WTO. Clearly, you know, businesses in, are increasingly feeling a little bit bit concerned about their dependence on Chinese manufacturing, particularly with the, the hard lockdowns going on in China, the closure of the ports, supply chain delays, and so on and so forth. And so we can say that factor, you know, the desire, the intense desire to, to outsource to China has clearly moved away. And China, of course, becomes a more expensive manufacturing centre as wages grow there. And then there's a, you know, there's a, the political aspects of, you know, outsourcing jobs abroad. Another major factor that drove the globalization trend was cheap energy. You know, that's easy to forget, but essentially what you did when you exported labor and production from, say, the US to China, what you were essentially doing is replacing relatively expensive US labor with relatively cheap Chinese labor and very cheap transportation costs because the oil price was very low. Again, we can say that factor no longer applies. We've got very expensive energy costs going forward. But there's another final factor which I think is driving the desire to bring production onshore. You know, 
over and above the security and cost issues, we're entering a period of mass customization, and um, particularly with you know the rise of robotics and so on and so forth. So there's a there's there's a real desire to have have it your way and when you want it amongst consumers, and that is made possible very much by by you know the, the increased technology and manufacturing. So essentially, we're we're replacing mass produced you know, very similar and common goods from China with much more, 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 more unique goods produced with high value labor in the West, but high value, high amounts of technological input. So a final factor that's also driving the end of globalization, which is, which is also very important and related to energy is you know that that high transportation cost business model, which was essentially the the the, the, um, the, the globalized business model, was essentially high transportation inputs, really worked when you were using fossil fuels. You know, you you were essentially the the main fuel input was was was, was heavy fuel oil from 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 underground. If the main fuel input going forward is going to be renewables. That doesn't work so much for transportation. It works really well for local manufacturing because obviously you're using electricity and all, almost all renewables produce electricity. So there's a number of big driving factors bringing production onshore. And of course, the way to play that will be through you know, the clever robotics businesses, software businesses, and so on and so forth, you know, where where they will, you know, British engineering replaces sort of cheap Chinese labour in essence. What what does that sort of suggest for um, you know economies such as China and Vietnam? Because if they thrived from making things for other countries in recent years, you know, is it actually sort of much bleaker outlook for them, and also perhaps you know for for the shipping industry as well? Right. Potentially, in a relative sense, I wouldn't necessarily say that you know these these are not successful and rapidly growing economies looking forward. And um, but their business model will essentially change. So, in the same way as the the Japanese business model transitioned through the 80s and 90s from being a massive exporter, it's still one of the world's leading exporter, but a much bigger growing domestic consumption sector. And that's essentially the plan for China over the next 10 or 20 years. The, the, the government have said so, you know, we want to be less dependent on exports to the West and have a much bigger domestic self-contained economy going forward. So they will continue to grow. Although you have to bear in mind, in the case of China, that you know, the workforce is no longer growing and will soon move into shrinking. And so, you know, the, the productive output of that workforce is clearly much better used supporting, the, you know, the domestic market much more than the export market. So it's driven from the other side as well. You know, they are actively planning to become less dependent on U.S. exports and more um, and a more self-contained economy. So what, where do we sort of stand then on sort of energy sort of um, production going forward? Obviously, we're seeing the West look for ways to become less reliant on Russian energy. But do you think that actually there's going to be a trend around the world where countries will look to increase domestic supply and particularly using renewable energy? 
I think absolutely. I, I think that goes, you know, I think in this deglobalized, perhaps more hostile world than we've been in for the last 30 years, what becomes important is to have your own energy production or at least your energy coming from friendly sources. And um, that goes to both fossil fuels and renewables in, in, in practice, because um, many countries have huge fossil fuel reserves they're not using. And there's been a massive underinvestment, you know, and essentially, you know, many countries got very lazy about their energy supply in recent years, just assuming it was going to be cheap and freely available from whether it was Russia or the Middle East or wherever. And that's really been called into question. So, you know, we will be investing quite heavily going forward in the next 10 or 15 years in both fossil fuels domestically where those are available, you know, clean gas and so on and so forth in renewables in the form of the better known renewables, solar. And there's a scheme at the moment, I don't know if you've seen it, to produce solar in, in North Africa and then and then run a huge cable from North Africa through to Europe to, to then supply Europe with solar energy. Sounds a rather expensive project to me, but apparently it's going to work. And as well as wind and importantly, nuclear. Nuclear is, is one, you know, very cheap form of energy that, that, that has been out of favour for a few years and I'm sure we'll be building more of that capacity. So yeah, domestic capacity and the point about domestic energy capacity is it, it almost every form of it produces electricity which is good for manufacturing, it's good for homes, it's good for all those uses but it's not so good for transportation. So the emphasis of the economy will move from moving goods around the world and and if you think about you know the supply chain for many goods it's very long very complicated and from many different sources as we move to an electric more electricity based economy you know our total energy usage moves from fossil fuels to 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 electricity inevitably we're going to be using that electricity close to where the final demand is and producing it where the final demand is so the, the two are very interlinked, these two deglobalization trend and, and the energy economy trends. Well, and finally, just where do, where we sort of stand on um, sort of food supplies, if, if sort of countries are looking to sort of um, get greater security of energy supplies, what, what are they doing with food? Because obviously with, with Russia and Ukraine have, have taught us that perhaps the world was over-reliant on certain places. Do you think that there's going to be sort of a, perhaps a, a sort of a decent boom in agricultural industry and, and sort of perhaps the, the service companies related to that sector? Absolutely. Over the long run, actually, there's a very simple way of thinking about what is food. Food is essentially farmland, soil, plus fossil fuels, plus a, a small amount of, of human input. But primarily, you know, whether it's fertilizer or tractors or the transportation of that food, all of that is coming from to a lesser or greater degree from fossil fuels. So essentially, as the cost of fossil fuels go up, the cost of food goes up. And that's absolutely linked together. And not only is Ukraine and Russia massive producers of grain for the rest of the world they're, they're also both both important suppliers of fossil fuel particularly via natural gas but but the mine forms uh, suppliers of fertilizer including natural gas and 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 the mine forms of fertilizer so so there are 
huge issues here around food supply and countries that absolutely will need to think much harder about where they're getting their food from, how they're producing their food, whether they can produce it domestically or not. And these are going to become very big issues, both in the near term, but also in the longer term, because, you know, a growing population and a wealthier population will require, you know, better and higher quality food going forward. So there's a lot of interesting investment opportunities, whether it's around the production of fertilizer, whether it's around ownership of farmland, but actually importantly, and, and this is one of the sad facts of reality around, around the world's food production, a huge amount of it goes to waste. And, and because of poor supply chains, poor transportation, and just the very simple, you know, the way we, we consume food in the West is very wasteful. And so around actually making that whole process more efficient and, and less wasteful. There are investment opportunities throughout that. And, and there's another investment opportunity around the food area, which is um, whether you want to call it functional foods or whatever, but, but producing foods in, in more nutritious and successful ways rather than necessarily just mass producing food that's not actually very nutritious. And so there's a lot of developments going on around the whole global food industry. And Personally, I think it's going to be a very interesting trend, you know, and there's so many different ways to invest in it, whether it's the very basic production part of it, but also through the sort of technological developments in how food is produced and how it's better produced and more efficiently and more nutritiously produced going forward. And, and a lot of public interest, actually, in, in that area as well. Well, David, Jane from Premier Mighton, thank you very much. It's been really good to have you on the podcast. Absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. David Jane from Premier Mighton chatting to Dan. And don't forget, if there is someone that you think that we should be talking to, a subject that we should be tackling, do get in touch. Email us podcast at ajbell.co.uk or drop us a message on social media. We love to hear from you. Now, uh, as we've constantly said time and time again, inflation, definitely the star of the show. And as I said earlier, look, the energy price cap played a massive part in awful April figures. Have you had your direct debit update yet, Tom? Yeah, I, I, I'm on a fixed tariff. So for the time being... Oh, you should brag about that. Well, yeah, I'm in a fortunate position until February and I can't imagine the situation will be much better then. So uh, delayed rather than avoided, I think. But um, for the time being, yes, I'm... Yes, I can feel slightly smug, but um, <laughs> well, I'm still waiting to to get an update. But we had a new boiler fitted at the end of last year, so I'm rather hoping that the savings that we make from that will will offset some of the pain. But we do know that um, we are going to see another price hike in October, which is when a lot of people, including the Bank of England, predict that inflation will rocket up to ten percent. But Ofgem, the body in charge of setting the cap, has now suggested making some changes to how often it sets that price cap. Um, you know, because at the moment it's twice a year, which means that you, you get for, for businesses, this is one of the reasons that they have really struggled. This is why a, a number of companies have gone bust over the last year because they 
bought gas at a high price but were forced to sell it at a much lower price than they bought it. And Bulb, obviously, was one of the biggest ones which um, the government sort of had to take over. Um, and that bailout has cost the taxpayer almost £1.7 billion. But in terms of consumers, there's a lot of concern about how that will impact consumers long term because it it sort of adds a degree of uncertainty. And although the idea is that if the gas price goes down, then those lower prices will start to filter through to the consumer much more quickly. It, it also means that if the prices go up, the same is is in effect. And of course, you know, the hikes that we're seeing at the moment, uh, which is really worrying, you know, what we've what we're all having to pay that extra seven hundred pounds if you're not on a fixed tariff like Tom is. Sorry. <laughs> then it could have been so much worse because we could in just a couple of months time then be having another hike. So certainly Martin Lewis um, was was very um, angry uh, yesterday when he was talking about this. And um, a lot of people are really concerned about what this might mean for us in the future, particularly because the whole idea with the price cap is to sort of keep bills sort of leveled out in the same way that the, the direct debit does. And if it does happen, of course, it, it could be that sort of January, just as we're using a huge amount of energy, that the price could rise once again. And this is really putting the pressure on, on the government to act, obviously on Ofgem to think about whether or not they push this through. But also, it's really shining a spotlight on energy companies, and there are still calls for a windfall tax. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, we've just been talking about the pressures on households. On the other side of the equation, the energy companies are doing quite nicely, thank you. And and that's just adding to this clamour for a windfall tax, like you say. So, Centrica, which owns British Gas, recently boosted its guidance. Um, and that did... Uh, it did look to sort of, you know, the company did look to quell talk of a new new um, levy by setting aside funds and adding staff to support struggling customers, um, as well as announcing plans to invest in the country's energy security. And and that kind of follows the in the footsteps of, of oil company BP, which had a similar blueprint. You know, it flagged big investment in the UK as it tried to forestall this idea of a windfall tax. But... Ultimately, when ordinary people are suffering this much and the profit in cash is piling up for these companies, it's hard to see talk of some kind of new tax going away. And we're recording this Wednesday lunchtime. So by the time it goes out, we might have had an update from the government because we know the government's under huge pressure to announce new measures to help people out there have been all sorts of uh, measures discussed in, in the papers, everything from bringing forward the proposed tax cut by a penny in the pound, um, bringing that forward from 2024 and actually having it come in at the time of the autumn budget, increasing sort of cold weather payments to, to people in need. But one of the things which has already been introduced um, is that £150 council tax rebate for bands A to D. And that was supposed to start going into people's bank accounts from April. But there's been a huge variety from council to council into whether or not that's happened and how that's happening. Um, 
people in bands A to D, as I say, if you pay by direct debit, you should get that put straight back into your bank account. But if you don't pay by direct debit, then you do need to check with your council about what you need to do to get that cash. And it could take up until September for some people to get the money in. Of course, at the moment when prices are rising so much, 150 quid into your bank account, if you're waiting for it and it's not coming in, then that can be quite difficult. Definitely, yeah. So much to get through today, but no pod is really complete without a visit from Jenny Owens. Hi, Jen. Hello. Hiya. And Jenny, your story is really very timely. We've spoken a lot about the Bank of England today, but the Bank of England's warning that uh, time's running out to spend any old paper 20s or 50s that you might have been keeping because they're going to be withdrawn at the end of September. I'm not sure. Certainly there are no spare 20s and 50s in my house at the moment. They get snapped up straight away, any kind of notes. Um, You're still going to be able to exchange them at the Bank of England after that date. But if you can, you might possibly want to keep hold of one or two, maybe put them away for your kids or your grandkids, and they might end up being worth more than face value, though possibly not as much as one banknote found in a charity donation tin, Jen. Yeah, so um, also with uh, what you've just said there, Danny, um, I remember when the f- new £5 notes came out and everyone was looking for ones with AA on the serial code. So I think That's I've right. got one of those. Yeah, I think I've got one of those tucked away somewhere, but it's in no way as good as this story, which basically this week a rare banknote has fetched a charity a whopping donation after the £100 note was donated to a charity shop in 2020 anonymously. One of the volunteers at Oxfam in Brentwood, Essex, deserves a massive pat on the back after putting aside a rare £100 note from the time of the British mandate in Palestine instead of putting it in the miscellaneous section for a few quid. Um, At auction recently, it sold for a gigantic £140,000 despite experts setting a £30,000 estimate. The rare banknote was issued during the British Mandate in Palestine in 1927, uh, issued by the League of Nations in 1920. Bidders headed online from all over the world, including the US and the Middle East. And in the end, all the proceeds obviously went to Oxfam's charitable work. It's only one of less than 10 known to exist. So no wonder it fetched such a large sum. That is a huge amount. And I would imagine that that guy was probably so close to just, you know, I don't know, putting it out somewhere, maybe with other notes, but 140,000. Yeah, he definitely deserves to be made employee of the month or volunteer of the month. 100%. Yeah, definitely. That would be so cool, wouldn't it, to find a note that was worth up. I don't know, even more than face value would be very exciting. (laughs) Absolutely. Too right. That's all we've got time for this week. Thank you so much for sitting in the hot seat again, Tom. Next week, I'll be joined by Laura Souter with the latest in her cost of living season, talking about credit card perks. Tom Selby will be here with the Pensions Corner and will be getting the lowdown on industrial REITs. Hope you can join us then. Bye. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes. And the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. 
And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor. Thank you.